you're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And Herds, <gasps> Flex, we're sat at the table with a third person today. A third presence <laughs> in the room. You may recognize the cackle. We are here with Sean Britton discussing Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, said by some to be the greatest murder mystery of all time. I don't know. I know about that. I don't know. We don't have to fight about that one, but it is very, very good. <laughs> thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy this novel in particular. And because uh, Flex and I, Flex and Hertz, we have already experienced this novel. We already know the twists and turns mm-hmm. of its many chambers. Uh, we, we brought Sean on to see if he can crack the code. Yeah, look, so, as yeah. I say, I'm uh, I'm quite actually a, a big yeah reading fan, such mm-hmm. as it were. But again, mm-hmm. embarrassingly enough, like the murder on the Orient Express, which I was brought in uh, on earlier, not come across this one. I've not seen the films. I've mm-hmm. not read the book. And uh, although it's been parodied many times, I am not actually <laughs> aware of how this one develops. Yeah, I think uh, it, it's it's always, it, it can feel a little, you know, as you say, embarrassing to realise <laughs> that you haven't read something quite so classic. There's definitely a long list of things, particularly particularly games that I haven't played that some people oh. would consider essential. But, uh, you know, people discover new things all the time and you are afforded the opportunity of discovery before our ears, Sean Britton. So it's good to have you here today. We are discussing the first six chapters of And Then There Were None. This was a murder mystery that Agatha Christie penned specifically uh, after coming up with its twist. It's one of those Mm. stories that spurned itself on from the idea of the puzzle rather than the idea of the fiction. And it's interesting to see the web that uh, Agatha Christie has written around it. And that is, of course, a big part of the story, isn't it? That it is not just a twist on its own. It is not a story that lives or dies by its twist. Um, I might make the argument that Murder on the Orient Express lives or dies by its twist, but this novel, I think, does an excellent job of taking 10 characters, uh, or perhaps more, and interweaving them and, and showing us their fears, their guilts, their passions. Look, the setup uh, itself, I I actually love this kind of setup. Obviously, you know, I have seen that before with the the isolation of just a group of characters and the way in which they pull together, pull apart, uh, the way in which some characters show new strengths, other characters show new weaknesses that would never be a part of their day-to-day life. So, uh, as, as I haven't watched, I haven't seen this one before. I haven't read this one in particular before. In terms of that kind of setting, yeah, I'm actually quite a fan of of that sort of storytelling. The thing I liked about this novel was how quickly it gets off the ground for something that essentially created its own subgenre of mystery fiction. Like this, it's really good seeing just how immediately into the, its own subgenre it gets. We have just a short stretch detailing all of the characters as they arrive, showing that they're all a bit obnoxious. You know, one person's speeding in a car, one person's ranting about how much he hates everyone else. It's it's a it's a mess of characters, and as soon as we get to the island and we start talking about UN Owen, I guess the proverbial needle drops. You can hear that this is where the story starts proper, and it's such a defined moment. I think it's quite fortunate then that we we don't get a Germanus Personae, which is you know much to my disappointment. But we do have uh, in you know in the the latest section of these of these chapters a call out post, as it were, to all of the characters on mm. the island, detailing their crimes, giving us their names in total. So you can always you know as you're trying to solve the murder, refer back to the uh, the gramophone recording, which outlines every single character on the island. 
Um, even ousting one of the characters as you know not the person they claim to be, Davis is revealed to be uh, William Henry Henry Bloor, uh, for instance. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate Agatha Christie's uh, attention to detail with all the characters because we get to see a. a from their perspective. It was cute, I thought, yeah, the little inner monologues themselves and some of the moments that come out of that one, although I do question it in regards to establishing a mystery because I'm I'm somebody who reads or watches a piece of fiction and I accept it on the face of it. There were some of the characters, as we were introduced to them, I'm like, well, that can't be, they can't be the murderer because, you know, <laughs> they, they would have established that. They would have told us in their first-person monologue that they were there for reasons differing mm. from what was actually being said. I mean, the one that really stuck out to me was, uh, was it Philip Lombard's? Yeah. The, uh, mm. He basically has this this moment in reflecting why he's going to the island where he says, better not involve anything illegal. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's probably not the kind of thought I'd have if I was going to the island to murder anybody. So I, I sort of immediately ruled him out as, as he's thinking, well, I'm not going to do anything illegal. I might have done things in the past, but... I'm not doing anything this time. At the yeah. same time, though, it does take quite a bit of courage for Christie to put that kind of thing out there because if uh, you know if it does end up being Lombard, of course, then that raises a few questions for you. But also narrowing essentially down your list of suspects so immediately at the beginning with things like mm-hmm. that is a really fun way to raise the suspicion because mm-hmm. uh, what that record introduces is all of the crimes that these people are supposedly on the island to you know pay penance for. Yeah. The novel is incredibly confident and Christie is incredibly confident with what pieces of information uh, she puts forward. She obviously, through the inner models of the characters, as they're traveling there on the, the train, by car, whatever, they all uh, think in one way or another about the person who's drawing them to the island. Mm. Uh, and they're all given you know different names of the person who's, who's calling them there, which is fantastic. And also about... Uh, their past and kind of foreshadowing, you know, the crimes that they've committed, whether they see them as crimes or not. Um, and I think that it's just incredibly brazen. As we say, it is is bold uh, and it is admirable of Chrissy to put so much information forward because you can tell she's 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 playing her first move, you know, in the murder mystery, which is a, you know, it's a battle between the detective and the the culprit. But in this story, do we even have a detective? So maybe it isn't really a a battle between the detective and the culprit. Maybe it's between the author and us and nobody else, you know? Yeah. I like the way you put that because it's starting to make me feel more confident about my uh, primary theory, but we'll oh, go on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing that I wanted to address uh, before we before we round this out, head over to the mystery section, was the way that, as you were saying, Sean, we have this cast of characters. And because it's this closed circle, we know exactly who the cast is. We have these internal perspectives of them. But it also... Uh, I feel like we have fewer moments in this novel than in a lot of other mysteries I've read where the characters are getting to know each other. Mm. For example, in the Decagon house murders, everyone in that case already knew each other. Mm-hmm. In uh, the Tokyo Zodiac murders, it's it was a family. family. Yeah. Whereas here, nobody knows each other aside from uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rogers, who are a couple. Mm. And it creates a very interesting tension where these characters already you know, are still on shaky ground because they haven't had time to get to know each other. But then also, one of them could be a murderer. So they're trying to make acquaintances with people that could be trying to kill them. Yeah, it's an interesting thought because I I do greatly enjoy, as I said, these kind of stories where they are isolated and tensions are playing between these things. And I think it's becoming more and more of a modern thing where those tensions are in a well-established friend group. And it's old tensions that are really driving a lot of the drama these old tensions that 
have been bandaged over but never healed. Here it's interesting because, as you say, they don't know each other. Hmm. They're still it, – it's, it's a getting-to-know-you pot, and I really enjoyed the point – after the record had played and they do go around and they say to one another, okay, well, what was this about, you know, you murdered this person, you killed this person, and and getting to know them with that very awkward question. Yeah, the worst thing they've ever done is the <laughs> yeah. introduction. It's an icebreaker question, guys. Feel free yeah. to use it at parties. I will say there was one character who didn't participate in the icebreaker Emily question. Emily Brent. And I was Miss just about, Brent. Yeah, I, you go. I really enjoyed that moment it's from so her. Good where you see so much of who she is as a character um, just yep. through that very small moment. That's why one of the big parts I enjoyed about that scene was you are getting to know who they are. I mean, you, again, with uh, Lombard character, the, you know, oh, yes, I, I was, you know, left the natives to starve, but they're natives. They don't, you know, they don't feel the same <laughs> way about it. Oh, and you've awful. got, you know, various perspectives on these characters and the perspective on her I thought was absolutely terrific. She's an iceberg. She's, you know, the world comes to me, but it will not... You know, I'll parts it parts around me rather than anything else. Yeah, so I yeah. really enjoyed I, that. I do want to agree with you, and I want to say just up front, Miss Brent is my favorite character. I love her, <laughs> and as you say, it's not just that we you know we see a different aspect of every character, but her silence speaks louder than any admission of what she may or may not have done ever could have. And I love that as a device, and I love Miss Brent as a character because she's just very conservative righteous faith i've done nothing wrong so nothing can hurt me and i think that's fantastic all righty well we are discussing the first six chapters of agatha christie's iconic and then there were none here with sean Britton on your murder mystery world tour don't go anywhere we'll have more of that in just a second You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Agatha Christie's iconic And Then There Were None, and I'm marvellously excited to be joined by Martin Edwards, current chair of the Detection Club over in the UK, author of Mortmain Hall, editor of How Done It, as well as an extensive collection of other stories you might have already tucked away on your shelves. Martin, I'm so excited. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Great introduction. Thanks very much indeed. Delighted to be with you. So How Done It is a marvellous collection of essays from writers throughout the Detection Club's history with insightful thoughts ranging from G.K. Chesterton's banging the detection fiction drum to Stella Duffy's stories of performance influencing the page to a case on why pet pictures will be what sells your book on the internet. Are there any particular ideas you came across in editing the collection that you now plan to put into your own writing? <laughs> well, it, you know, putting that book together was an absolute joy. I, I, I floated the idea to the Detection Club members uh, just a, just over a couple of years ago. And the idea was to raise funds. And I had the idea of a slim volume with, uh, with maybe 12, 15 members and maybe half a dozen uh, uh, former members, deceased members, big names like Christie and so on. Uh, and the, the members not only picked it up and, and approved the idea, but um, uh, they responded so, so wonderfully well and so generously we had the idea of dedicating the book to len dayton because it was 50 years since he, he'd been elected to the club he wrote a new essay i think his first new writing uh published for quite a number of years and in the end pretty much every living member contributed they all contributed free to donated to the uh, club to keep the funds going the estates were marvelous so we finished up with uh, uh with 90 contributors as well as myself uh, putting it all together and receiving those manuscripts all with different perspectives on crime writing past and present 
was uh, was an absolute joy, I must say. What are the other collections you've written? The Golden Age of Murder in 2015 held within it one of the first pieces of trivia I ever recited on this show about uh, Ronald Knox's infamous radio broadcast that terrified its London listeners. What motivates you to tell stories of the genre's past, both of household names like Christie and niche writers' favourites like Knox, whose name pops up a <laughs> shocking number of times in How Done It? <laughs> I've always loved uh, the genre. Uh, the whole range of the genre since I discovered Christie at the tender age of eight. And and really from that moment on, I, I just wanted two things. First of all, to read lots and lots of uh, detective stories, crime stories, uh, and secondly, to to make up stories myself. And the, the fascination with uh, the heritage of uh, the genre, uh, the likes of Knox, and of course, he, he was an influential player in the early days of the detection club. Uh, seems to me that uh, there are so many great books written, but it's traditionally been the case that, that once a book goes out of print, it used to be the case, that the book was very often forgotten. Christie is the exception to every rule. But <laughs> there have been so many great books uh, that, that have just disappeared from sight. That, that's always struck me as very sad. And, and I, I think that getting the, the message out as, as, as much as one can, that um, a lot of the books written in the past have something of interest, not just for the stories themselves, but also they tell us something about uh, bygone times, that, uh, uh, that they've become a part of social history, their social documents. Yeah, I suppose with that type of social document, uh, I draw to mind the uh, post you have on your website about Christie's secret and how she writes so well about human nature. And interesting you raised there that it's a bygone time and there's so many things in, and then there were none, which we're covering on the show at the moment that I think, oh, this is incredibly dated. So even though Christie comes from this different era that can feel so different, there are different words, different phrases, different jobs that have just disappeared more or less. Why do we still see that human nature in the way she writes? Well, I, I think this was uh, her greatest gift in some ways. And it, it may be the key to understanding what differentiates her work from that of all the contemporaries of hers who, who didn't achieve quite as much, despite all their many uh, talents and the wonderful books they, they wrote. She, she had a, a relatively uh, simple uh, approach, I think, to uh, uh, character but she was creating, if not archetypes, at least recognisable types, so that even though um, you know you don't come across that many butlers today, <laughs> yeah. even, even in England, it's got to be said. I think it's these enduring human characteristics that that play a big part in. Christie, a very, very big part. One of the things I love about your work, nonfiction and fiction, is the way you employ the tropes of the genre to tell stories about and within the genre, such as a mystery that you lay in the golden age of murder that you then answer some 200 pages later, which to many would just be not well to do in a nonfiction book. <laughs> In mystery fiction, where seemingly every question has been asked and puzzle solved, how encyclopedic does one need to be to keep some semblance of originality? Well, to me, really, it's a First and foremost, it's about narrative. It's about telling the story. Uh, it, it, in, in my other life as, as, as a lawyer, I, I realised as an advocate that 
that you're presenting a narrative to, to a tribunal, and, and even in a labor law case, it's it's about the, the, the narrative that you're presenting, and then there's the competing narrative uh, that your opponent presents. Uh, so I think that the need for narrative, the desire for story, is something very deeply rooted in human nature. And in my case, I'm particularly interested, of course, in mysteries and puzzles um, and the puzzles of, of human life and of human nature. And, and this is this is why when, when I'm writing a non-fiction book like The Golden Age of Murder, I, I tell the story in that form because it's a form that appeals to me as a way of trying to discover truth. No, I think that's really fun. And I guess the word that comes to mind when I think of Mortmain Hall, your uh, latest fiction book was haunting because there are so many elements that seem intimately familiar that you dangle in front of uh, Rachel Savanake and the audience only to whisk them away as you build a network of intrigue that creeps across the mind like cracks in the titular crumbling hall. But it occurred to me that somehow for all of the mystery novels we've talked about on the show, even though I know a clue finder is a, a staple uh, of the genre in some authors. This is actually the first one that we've had on the show. So where, Martin, does the tradition come from and how does one pick which clues to list at the end when every page could be dripping with information? Well, the the clue finder, um, its origins probably go back to the late 1920s. And I, I think the earliest example I've found is, um, is with the Detection Club member, J.J. Connington. Uh, he, he wrote, uh, uh, very uh, meticulous fair play mysteries and he introduced the idea of the clue finder where uh, at the end either in footnotes or in or in a document at the end of the story the reader is directed to the pages in the text where the clues to the solution were first placed so you can go back and ah, oh, yeah i should have realized that, <laughs> that, that sort of feeling so um uh, uh, Connington started, and it was taken up by uh, by other writers we've, we've mentioned, Knox. But curiously, Kingsley Amis uh, 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 did a very small token clue find in his pastiche Golden Age novel, The Riverside uh, Villas uh, Murder. That was in the 60s. But since then, the clue finder has, has vanished. And I thought it would be fun, because I was writing a book set in that period, uh, to... Uh, to test myself uh, in terms of playing fair, particularly given that I'd concealed from the reader what the central mystery actually is. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it, it was only fair to discipline myself and make sure that there are indeed plenty of clues in the text. And in the end, I, I think there were 34 distinct clues listed in the clue founder. So that, so that felt pretty fair to me. Yeah. So uh, it, was, it was rewarding. And I've been really gratified by the way that readers have responded to it, uh, so much so that I'm writing another book about Rachel at the moment. So I'm thinking, well, maybe maybe I might just try another clue finder just, yeah. to, just to see if it can be done again. It's definitely a fun idea, and I'm looking to get to it once I've gone through my reread, because as I'll continue to say on this show, the reread is the true crime fiction experience. But uh, Martin, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here on Death of the Reader, and I'm so excited to hear more from Rachel Savnake. So thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks, it's been great. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We will have links up on the podcast to Martin's work. If you're curious in checking it out, we are discussing Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. 
you're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here, your murder mystery world tour. We're here with Sean Britton discussing Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, chapters one to six. Herds and I both knew the answer to the puzzle for this one, so we had to bring in someone else to challenge for this and the next couple of weeks, and Sean bravely stepped forward from the crowd. So, Sean, you have one of the most iconic murder mysteries of all time to solve before you, and just right out the gate, who is your number one pick oh my goodness. for the culprit? Oh, right out on the, the block. Uh, my pick right out the gate is Anthony Marston, the first Whoa. victim of the of the murderer. Exciting! I love this. This is so much fun. Okay, so you're you're saying right out the gate. Let's unpack this a little bit. Anthony Marston is the the rich kid with the fast car. <laughs> killed uh, he he killed two uh, orphans who live in a cottage somewhere. So allegedly supposedly, killed supposedly. two orphans. Yeah. That's what we've heard. He prevented Narnia from happening. That's it. That's exactly <laughs> it. And he, as you say, he's the first victim, the first of our ten ten Indians uh, to to eat it apparently via uh, poisoning. Um, yes, but my yours, theory, yeah, my yeah, theory you, he's not involves, dead. Uh, but yeah, would essentially would involve him faking his own death in order to uh, beyond be beyond suspicion, as I guess the others are picked off. Yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. If I was putting together a murder mystery like this and I was the culprit, this is absolutely the position I want to be in. Because if you're the first person to die. You can move around all you want. You can be wherever you want. You can do all the kills you could ever dream of. I mean, I feel like I'm getting the short shrift. Right, six. It, there's only two people dead so far. It's and true. One of them, one of them is my uh, is my supposed murderer. But, um, it's but yeah. no, it's a bold move. I'm into it. Can but, you? Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not too clear on it yet. But that is my my primary theory. Well, is I mean, Anthony Martin. can you sure, can you unpack that for me a little bit? Because you know the situation's pretty crowded. There are there are you know the ten people. They're all reeling from the the whole gram- gramophone thing. And and Marston says he's like we should stay here and solve the mystery, yeah. and then that's when he eats it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that the the doctor there, Doctor Armstrong, actually confirms his death. I think. Can you walk me through that a little bit? Do you think that's an accomplice doctor there? Do you think that I there's... don't necessarily believe he's an accomplice. I think he's uh, not a particularly good doctor uh. based on what's uh, what's been established, and you know may have been jumping the, to the conclusion that. Marston wanted him to jump too. You know, I didn't think his taste test uh, to prove cyanide was necessarily the most uh, able kind of test you might have for something like this. Look, you know, I thought Marston as a character, the way he went out is literally toasting crime. He literally mm. goes to crime and then drinks and chokes <laughs> to death. So I thought that was a that was perhaps a little bit much. He's potentially a total sociopath, or I thought maybe he was mocking the callousness. He's being so callous to mock the others who are all responsible for deaths in and of themselves. That was my character Mm. theory. Plus there was the whole thing about it was his own glass. I Mm. mean, I I think certainly there's fairly easy ways to get around that. Um, But at the same time, they did make a big thing about he must have done it himself. He must have used his own glass Mm. because it's not in the... It's not in the soda, it's not in the whiskey. Yeah, and speaking mm-hmm. of that callousness, he's also one of the few characters that we don't get an internal monologue from so far in the story. Exactly and right. And cutting that out right at the beginning leaves a lot of room for his motive to go, on, go unnoticed by the camera, per mm-hmm. se. So I think that's it. That's an interesting theory. I, I do like, I, I kind of criticize the Deku and Housemers a little bit for the, the sloppiness of, <laughs> of the kills in that story, but I really, I really like how, at least so far, the murders have have corresponded with the the Indian uh, 
like nursery rhyme mm -hmm. that's like hung in everyone's rooms, which is beautifully poetic, and I love it. I really did um, enjoy that. I've got to say, yeah, didn't uh, didn't mention <laughs> so in the earlier half of the episode, but uh, yeah. yeah, I loved that little technique. The, oh, here's here's the yeah, here's yeah. the list. You can tell just based on you know the elements of the crime, the gramophone with the with the distorted voice and the rhymes that are hung up in everybody's room. And the the statues, like the Tangle Indian statues, like all of these different elements are clearly being placed here by a a, a person with a, a poetic mind, I suppose. Somebody who's, you know, thought about what they're doing. They've had a lot of time to plan, that sort of thing. Um, and we can kind of read into that uh that element, I guess, uh, through the the set dressing, which I think is really mm. cool. And it's also it's nicely done in that the poem is written in such a way where it doesn't feel like it's got a nostalgic element to it where the characters in the story know it, but it's also mm -hmm. been updated, which is, I guess, a yeah. more playful, youthful thing. So it's, it doesn't point at any particular character and how it's put together. If I may use a, a turn of phrase here, it's the idea of taking the familiar and turning it sinister, mm. which, to segue real quick, uh, reminds me a lot, the setup of this story, and, and Sean and I were having a little gaff about this earlier, it reminds me of the modern slasher stories um, in in which usually they're set in urban environments. They play on that, like, unknown, like, that fear of your next-door neighbor that, you know, you're a morally upstanding citizen in your, your house with the white picket fence, but the person living next door might not be, and you don't know. You're not allowed to, like, mm. look over the fence and look in. Especially as... Uh, there, there are some instances further on in the book where we actually get a series of thoughts from, you know, the characters who are still around, but it doesn't tell you who's having which thought. And those are some of the most exciting parts of the novel. Yeah. Trying to figure out who's thinking what. And finally, Sean, the murder mystery game is divided into three normal questions. The who, how, and the why. <laughs> and the, the, the who we've addressed, the why, sorry, the who we've addressed, the how is fairly unnecessary to explain it's, it's at this yet point. To come. Yeah. Uh, but the why, Sean, you know, we've kind of we, we've skirted around it. We've we've done a fast drift <laughs> in uh, in his car around why you think uh, in Marston's car. Yeah, and why you think Marston's done it. What, what possible reason could this young, cocky, brash fellow have for bringing ten people to an island? Because it sounded earlier like he was suggesting that it was mere sociopathy and psychopathy, which of course it is, because who brings 10 people to an island to kill? Like, obviously. <laughs> but is that the entire motive? Is this just a serial killer story under the guise of a murder mystery? Well, look, I don't know if he is. Um, I mean, as you say, this, the, you clearly got to be some sort of sociopath to, to do this. As they point out many times it. already. Um, yeah, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't know whether he was a genuine sociopath or playing the part in the way he was carrying on. I would presume there is an aspect of a sense of justice uh, in the motivation of this one, these are all responsible for deaths in some way, shape, or form, and this is some act of vigilantism. Looking for a motivation, very much following on from uh, Murder on the Orient Express with you guys, I was trying to find connections between these characters. That was kind of my main uh, thing as I was looking at these characters and how they were connecting their connections. Um, I spotted a few. Obviously, the most obvious ones, I think, are with the judge. And, you know, he's got a connection with Armstrong as a witness and he's got a connection, or I thought maybe there's a connection with the uh, with the young governess who allowed the, the child to sort of drown. Mm. Uh, there was a connection, I thought, with Emily Brent. And it, I guess what I was looking at with some of them was they only had single witnesses to the supposed crimes. Yeah. And, you know, Emily Brent had a connection with uh, MacArthur's uh, regiment, which maybe that's how she got word of 
the mm. Uriah Gambit he'd basically done with his wife's lover, and she was a pious individual. Yeah, yeah you don't have any strong feelings about Emily Brent. I can see you got, you got some notes there. Well, she's my secondary, but I don't have a solid. Mm. Uh, that mm. Anthony Marston, I felt like you know. I've got an idea of what he's done. Emily sure. Brent, maybe there's some things surrounding her, but I don't have a theory on mm. what she's doing or why she's doing it just yet. Yeah, it almost sounds to me like maybe you're kind of leaning towards a bit of a generational frustration where it feels <laughs> like the the old-fashioned whims of law and the strictures of this kind of work that Justice Wargrave would have been doing has let down the individual behind this crime and this mm. is them getting back at a system they're frustrated with. Mm. Well, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, you know, there was definitely some uh, some aspects of that. You know, there's yeah. some aspects of the frustration with the system and the system has obviously let all of these people get away with murder. Yeah, and it, it, that definitely does point towards kind of younger characters. So it's it's curious. Maybe, mm. maybe all of the younger characters in the story are here Working together, wouldn't that wouldn't that be a thing? That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> we get halfway through the novel and turns into a, a boat gun chase or something. It'd be crazy. I'd be down for that. We're not allowed boats in a closed-off island murder mystery. But the, they can just look if they're all working together and they kill everyone else and they wait around and like now what are we doing? Like oh, we get a boat, we go rob some banks or something. It'll be great. It'll be a great time. And final thing, Sean, before we wrap up today, do you think anyone will survive? Oh, um, can't say I've thought dun, of that dun. one yet. Will anyone survive? No, no. I think uh, at the end, some the last one's going to neck themselves. That something's mm. going to happen there where uh, think where no nobody will be left. The you true think, perfect crime. I think none <laughs> shall be left alive when the uh, hold on the storm clears. <laughs> Just and then there were one. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's the name of the book. We are discussing Agatha Christie's, and then there were none with Sean Britton here on Death of the Reader. We will be back with chapters seven to thirteen next week on the show. I hope you're looking forward to it as much as we are. If you're joining us, this is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on Two SER one hundred seven point three.